When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Robin Ince is a multi-award-winning comedian, writer and broadcaster. As well as spending decades as one of the UK's most respected stand-ups, Robin is perhaps best known today for co-hosting the Infinite Monkey Cage radio show with the physicist Brian Cox. For his work on projects like Cosmic Shambles, Robin was made an honorary doctor of science by Royal Holloway University of London. Robin's latest book, The Importance of Being Interested, published by Atlantic, was released in October 2021. Robin Ince, welcome to New Books Network. Hello, how are you? Good, thank you. Thank you for joining us. I wanted to ask you about your book tour because you're already five weeks into promoting the importance of being interested. How's it been going? Good. I've had a lovely time. But I mean, I came up with this kind of ridiculous idea because I come up with ridiculous ideas quite a lot of the time because I I've, I have manic phases. Anyone who works with me knows that I'm I'm, I'm kind of a nightmare because I just go, I've got an idea. Let's do it now. Qu- quick, hurry up, hurry up. Oh, it's Tuesday. I'm bored now. You know, I'm one of those kind of people. And I was meant to be doing uh, an arena tour with Brian Cox. And then we decided to postpone it because of everything that's basically going on in the world till next year. And then I thought, well, I can't do nothing in autumn. So I decided I would go to 100 different independent bookshops in the UK and just like around the UK and then I started to put it together and then of course it's become 112 bookshops but it's it's stopped increasing now because I've literally run out of days and wormholes are not a way that I can manage to get from bookshop to bookshop Um, but yeah I'm up to number 70 tonight so so the 70th bookshop is just around the corner I love doing it because it puts me into a kind of just I get very excited a lot of the ideas that I talked about in the book are things that still excite me and also I had to cut out about 120,000 words of the book because it was so much longer than it was meant to be um, so I've also got all of these other things that are kind of bubbling around and then every single night and every single afternoon that I do shows I meet someone in the audience very often more than one person in the audience who has another story which takes you somewhere else so it just keeps you know uh, like the universe it just keeps expanding <laughs> and you've been uh, traveling around by rail is that right yeah, yeah, yeah. No public transport. I'm stress testing the uh, infrastructure of the United Kingdom. Uh, the quality of the uh, trains is uh, is somewhat shabby, but I have to admit, I've been impressed. I've only been late twice so far. So out of 70 gigs, that's not too bad. And 112 gigs in three months, is it? In 12 weeks, basically? Or Yeah, no, it's less. It, it, it's it's about two months, really. It, it wow. starts, it ends on the uh, 9th of December. Uh, and we began our, or I began on, I think it was the the. 5th of October 
and then go straight into doing London gigs after that uh, with uh, do things like the Albert Hall with Brian Cox and and, uh, and lots of other. So suddenly a, another change of scale immediately. That's yeah. what I like. See, the fun thing to me was that some of the bookshops are so small uh, that they you know they got in contact. They said, "Oh, I know you probably can't come to us because we could only fit twelve people in." I went, "No, let's do that. Let's do let's do twelve people in Margate." So sometimes it's it's you know that that nice thing that I was meant to be playing twelve thousand seaters and said I'm playing twelve seaters sometimes. Mm. And you you recognise some of the people in the audience, don't you? You you like uh, some some fans come time and again, and you get to actually have relationships with them. Well, let's explain that a bit. Not have relationships with them, but you, yeah, uh... no, no, no. <laughs> I mean that. Yeah, in that way, that it's always interesting. Where um, you know, I'm quite a kind of niche person, but I, in one way, I get a very broad audience because I do get ten year olds who come along, and I get ninety year olds who come along. Um, but yeah, the, the the nice side of that is that uh, because I do so many normally anyway. Obviously, it's been very different in the last eighteen months. But normally, I probably tour three different shows, and then I come up with another kind of idea, and then I do my shows with Brian as well. And some people will come to all of those, and some people will come to more than one of even the same show. There's uh, a, a guy called Mick who comes to a lot of my gigs in the north of England, and so and I saw and I started noticing him. I said, "Stop buying tickets because you've seen the show three times, and if you want to come again, just tell me, and I, I will sort a ticket." And he went, "Well, it's always a different show." And then that's a nice thing because you feel that you have a little bit. If I see him in the audience, or I see someone else who I know has seen a talk two or three times, it's an extra spark to go. You better make sure you don't do the same talk as you did last week. And why did you write this book now? How how does it relate to your the content of the tour? And how did you kind of draw a circle around this book and say that's a unit? Well, it was an interesting thing because it kind of, like everything that I've done, it started off with an idea which is not necessarily the idea it became. Uh, I mean, my, my main reason to write it was that I had noticed how many people were scared to bring up science, scared to talk about science, or just went blank the moment someone might have said that they were a physicist or whatever. And, um, and when I was doing a lot of the bigger shows as well, very often people leave with this kind of fear where they say, um, oh, I just feel so insignificant. And so I wanted to kind of deal with those those fears because I think some people run away from science. I, th I think one of the reasons is sometimes secondary school education can make it appear to be abstract when, it, of course, it's not abstract. It's the universe we're in. Um, and I think the other thing is that sometimes ideas can seem so big and impenetrable that it's better to run away from them than to start looking into them and prodding them. And so, for instance, like when people would say that they felt insignificant, I would often reply to them. I would say, the thing is, you are considerably smaller than Jupiter, but considerably harder to explain. So that to me is a very important point, really, which is it's easier to explain a gas giant than it is you or me, that this pattern of atoms that we are has the ability to imagine and question and dream and think about the past and, you know, project ourselves into a possible future. All of those things are very complex and very significant. So, so that was the first kind of starting point. And then as I wrote more of it as well, I felt, you know, hopefully somewhere in the book is also a sense of humility, a sense of the idea that, you know, doubt is such an important part of being human. And certainly what we've seen in politics, I think, in, in, in the US and in the UK and in other places around the world, you know, dogmatism and certainty is a selling point. However wrong that certainty is, however damaging that certainty is, certainty is somehow seen as a safer thing than saying, hey, hang on a minute, Let's. I think this is changing a bit. I think this idea we should maybe, oh, look at you flip-flop 
shopping. So I wanted to deal with the fact that, you know, doubt was important, humility was important. And also, I think ultimately that looking at scientific ideas, it's so easy to get caught up in the petty squabbles of humanity because they are trending on Twitter every single day. And they're not the big squabbles of humanity. They're dull things from daytime TV or something trite or ridiculous or nefarious that a politician's done. And how much more enjoyable it is to immerse yourself in looking at the universe to just maybe spend an evening looking at the moon through a telescope or the rings of Saturn or whatever it might be. So I think I also wanted the the original title of the book was Chaos of Delight, which is a quote from Charles Darwin, who, when he travelled around the Brazilian rainforest, was just he basically went into nature shock. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. These incredible forms of of of, of orchids and butterflies, and and he wrote in his journals, "Today my mind was a chaos of delight." So it was also a call to try and say, you know, it's very easy, I think, to fall into dissatisfaction and to fall into judgment of others. And it takes a little bit more work to find the chaos of delight sometimes and just open yourself up to it. And open yourself up to, again, in terms of fear of embarrassment, is it's more embarrassing for some reason to talk about love, to talk about joy. We're so ready, certainly in England, I think. We are, the national character is one to go, oh, God, well, you're getting a bit overexcited about that, aren't you? And and I think, you know what, there are things to be excited about. And if, if the people around you are snide and cynical, change the people around you. What brought you back to science then? You said that um, school kind of made it too abstract or and you talk about in the book about it not being a happy experience to do school science and then you came back to it in your 20s so what made you go back what what sparked the interest again well one of them and this is interesting was only when I was talking the other day that I realized there's a thing that I'd missed out in the book really which is there was a, a news headline when I was 23 and it was actually the front page which is quite a rare thing and it was about the echoes from the big bang and it just said echoes from the big bang can still be heard reverberating around the universe and that seemed like such a huge idea and it seemed so preposterous to me because I knew that the universe was very very big and I knew the Big Bang was a long long time ago and then this idea that these echoes were bouncing around and so I think that was the very first seed and then I kind of picked up certain books initially it was a book of skepticism by uh, James Randi uh, James Randi psychic investigator and around the same time I bought Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World Science as a Candle in the Dark and those would definitely from those three points I can see where I've why I've ended up going where I've gone and that pushed you specifically to science though and your collaboration with Brian Cox is is very physics focused although it does bring in other things as well right (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think our live shows probably have a, a more physics. Though that that said, I think each one of the live shows has had more and more connection to the emotions of humanity. I, th- I think, and especially the next one that we're going to do in particular, I think is the most kind of human and humane that we've done, even though it's dealing with black holes a lot of the time. So, so for me, also, I mean, science is only one of the things. It is generally curiosity. The the, the books I've got in my, I mean, the books I've got in on my desk at the moment. There's one about mental health. There's a Penguin Science Survey from. 1965 there's a a book of meditations from 1932 that I just thought sounded interesting there's a journal of some women who went to a cannibal island in 
1936, a book of national celebrity, uh, a book about the nature of uh, understanding suicide, Haley's Comet, and uh, how DNA might have been discovered by an ancient tribe, and the ghost stories of Shirley Jackson. So that's a very typical kind of, that's what's going on in my head all the time. And it turns out the science is kind of, that's where sometimes I try and focus it. But I'm very scattered. I mean, that's why I could never be a scientist. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, what kind of scientist would you be or would you ever want to go and study science? I say, I have a flippity gibbet mind. My mind is one that will leap from place to place, which I used to really beat myself up about. And more recently, having had conversations about ideas of ADHD and things like that with with, uh, some people, I've realized that maybe I don't have a mind like Brian Cox's, but I can make rapid connections. That's one of the things that I can do. But that does mean that there are many unfinished books in the room around me, you know, because I just start a book and find a brilliant idea. And that takes me to another book about another brilliant idea. Mm. But the, yeah, this book does cover a lot of ground. It's, it's kind of an omnivore's approach to humanity. But the, the theme, as you said, the thing that's kind of in the middle of it is a kind of intellectual humility and not being certain or dogmatic and always being open to new ideas. Um, and your, your voice is very distinctive in it. It's a, it's, it feels like a nice person talking, you know, it's a nice book. It's, it's, a, it's kind of, um, let's saying, let's, let's tone down the harsh discourse that, as you said, it gets polarized on the, on the internet in particular. Um, but, you know, you went with James Randi and the kind of skeptic stuff early and you talk a bit about new atheism and how that was initially kind of attractive. The certainty of science was initially attractive. But in this book, you present a very kind of mellow um, view of that, which feels more philosophically realistic to me. It's kind of more agnostic. Um, does that butt up against, for example, Brian Cox, when you're working with him, he, he's probably less open to that mystical stuff or or can you say something about that oh yeah i mean i think that is i mean on, on one side of it on the god side of it i think both him and me are in agreement that it's not really an issue the issue is dogma the issue is bigotry the issue is not about you know because the, there are many friends of mine who have different forms of i mean oddly enough the day before i'm speaking to you now i was staying with the bishop of leeds after doing my gig in leeds and i have lovely conversations with the bishop of leeds and lots of people like that um and and I I think as time has gone on, I, th- I think there probably was a point sometime in my early 30s where I fell for that trap. Hey, if people didn't believe in, you know, God, then none of the bad thing. And then you go, no, 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 if people didn't want dogma, that, that's the important bit. Now, of course, religion can be and is in 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 many places a vehicle for dogma and a vehicle to contribute. But then you realize it's most important for those people who run those religions. It's about power. God is almost one of the side elements to make sure you can monetize uh, your uh, and and keep a harsh grip on your power. So I, I think Brian and I both kind of have that opinion that it's it's about the actions that you take and it's about what your belief makes you do. And if your belief really does limit the world that you can look at and also allows you to judge others as lesser to oppress them, whether it's you know from an LGBT perspective, whether it's you know about uh, being a woman, whether it is is uh, about different cultures uh, and ethnicities and all of those things. That's where the important thing comes in. Um, the the interest of it is I certainly am. I mean, I, I don't know because, you see, I think he's changed over time and I've probably changed. I, I, because about 2012, we had a huge, I think one of our only stand-up rows, we don't argue very much at all. 
um we when we tour we stay we have the same dressing room you know we play these huge arenas and they go here's your dressing room here's robin's dressing room and we just sit together and and then we wander out and we do our show so we're very relaxed in that way and the only arguments we've had have been about i think sometimes philosophical ideas and one of them was about the fact that uh i i read something which i think is a very important thing to contemplate on is we cannot um observe nature from outside of nature we are part of nature we must always be aware that we have grown with it not outside it um but that doesn't mean that we can't use our ingenuity to try as much as possible to get objective ideas to 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 remove that that you know the 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 uh the sometimes the human emotion but then equally human emotion is the drive that has led to us wanting to find out why the universe has mass for instance um but he was yeah we had a proper stand up row about that because i and i think that's such an interesting place because the interesting place is it doesn't mean that we can't aim to get more and more objective but we must always remember that we are within that world of nature and there may be things that are elusive to us and we we cannot forget as well that you know scientists are emotional creatures mm. um mm. and that you know some of the reasons that some scientists don't believe in certain ideas end up sometimes coming down to emotion um looking at the history of science so yeah i i, I think I, I i like robert anton wilson's idea of a kind of universal agnosticism for all things but that doesn't mean that I'm just thinking, it doesn't mean that I hold up everything to have the same worth either. Mm. Things do prove themselves to be a much better idea. You know, this is this does go back to that idea that science is not about being right. Science is about being, you know, coming up with the least wrong answer based on the technology and knowledge that we have at any one time. And then, you know, you see Isaac Newton and people will say, Isaac Newton was wrong. And you go, yeah, Isaac Newton was wrong. But he was right enough to a certain point that his equations could be used to get human beings on the moon. So as wrong goes, he had a pretty good wrong. And and that's, I, I, I think, the problem is the moment that you get into this idea of a kind of universal agnosticism, people think that you are dealing with every idea with, with just total equality and each one has as much worth. And, of course, I don't believe that. Mm. What about um, the thinking about what gets excluded from science, though? I mean, rather than saying that... Um all ideas are equally valid. For example, if you're interviewing somebody about the nature of consciousness and you frame the question in one way and they say, yeah, but that's not how I look at it because I look at it this way and you're thinking it doesn't exist in my space, my problem space, that that's a debate that can that feels like it's philosophically more open than the, than the scientist might see it as within their work. What do you think about that? Well, that the semantics problem when you get into consciousness is, of course, really... I mean, th that that's one of the issues, I think, which is that's when it becomes harder to call it science. Uh, it becomes science once at least you've decided on your definitions for that particular problem. If your definition of a subatomic particle is totally different to my definition of a subatomic particle, we're not going to be able to move very much further in our laboratory together. So, I mean, Richard Feynman talked about that because it's an interesting thing with Richard Feynman, the great Nobel Prize winning physicist, uh, because he went to a series of, of philosophy lectures and used to often talk about how, how he, he didn't really have much time for, for philosophy. Mm -hmm. And yet, actually, if you read his books, you will find out that they are very philosophical, I think, many of many of his ideas. Some, something which occasionally shocked him and rather annoyed him. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember whether it was Kip Thorne or someone like that who once said to him that uh, his, his, his book about light and matter was tremendously philosophical. It can be philosophical. When you're, it's not philosophical. It's science. It's science. Definitely science. Um, and, uh, uh, but, he he went to these lectures uh, about philosophy and he said he eventually got annoyed because he was 
they were debating about solid objects and he realized that after six months they still hadn't actually decided what a solid object was and so that's one of the, the philosophy uh, perhaps and i say this with very little learning on this but i i suppose philosophy is part of it is at least giving us right here we go if we spend long enough on this we'll eventually decide what we reckon this word is meant to mean and then we can move further scientifically does that make sense i think so um, what what made you go for science rather than philosophy? As you're, you know, why aren't you touring with with philosophers? Why are you focused on more on science? Oh, I would. I mean, you know, what I would love to do a tour. Someone came up to me the other day and said, you know, why don't you do a show about? I mean, I've I've done tours about art. Uh, I've done mm. shows about philosophy. I would happily do. You know, I mean, I mean, I think the science thing um, is, I think, because it deals with so many different, as all of them do, deal with so many issues, but. I think science has something pragmatic about it at the moment. There's, when we watch how science can get misused when it's discussions about COVID or climate change or many of the other problems that we, we will have to deal with, I think it's quite important to make sure that people are not scared of it. Mm. Um, and I think that science also has something more tangible than philosophy. I think it would be very hard for me in one way. I would love to do an hour-long show. Uh, I mean, you know, just about, I, I don't know, say it was Schopenhauer. I always enjoy Schopenhauer. Very, very grumpy man. Loved his poodles, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I enjoy reading it. You know, it's very aphoristic. Um, I, I'm not sure whether people would be able to take such a tangible thing from what I hope they can take from this book. I would love to write a book about philosophy. But philosophy takes a lot longer, partly, again, because you have so many different definitions. I mean, that's where consciousness is very interesting. There's a brilliant book about consciousness at the moment by Anil Seth uh, called Being You, which I think is a very pragmatic book. Mm. And then there are other books that I've read where I just, I go, as you said, I don't, I don't even know how you're defining consciousness. When you're talking about, well, you know, even a rock could have a level of consciousness. Well, hang on, what do you mean by consciousness there? You're really changing consciousness there. Mm. The idea that, oh, and then then it turns out what they mean is kind of the matter inside the rock maybe has a... And you go, well, of course, the potential for consciousness, for being part of consciousness, is in every single atom because all of your atoms have been in many inanimate objects. You know, most of the time, probably most of the atoms you're made of have not been in anything that's been conscious. Mm. Um, so once you get into those debates, I think the problem is it's much... Philosophy is a very difficult... Because it can be so subjective, mm. I think the information that I, I would deliver would end up being more confusing than enlightening. And I don't think I would be able to give the... I mean, I think there's some great writers. Uh, I think people like Julian Bergini are really useful in writing about philosophy and giving people the tools mm. of saying, here, here is the manual, here are the questions. I mean, one of the most important things, and why philosophy is incredibly important to science, I'm certainly not someone who's one of those people who sees philosophy as this kind of, you know, frippery and decorative thing, is critical thinking. Because, you know, that's where science and philosophy need to, to work together a lot is working out how we arm everyone, and in particular now in schools, arm people with understanding why certain people believe what they believe, why you should trust some sources, what what are the ideas that you should, why you should be, why you should wish to fight some battles and not other battles. All of these are philosophical arguments. So I think there's, I mean, I do think there's probably quite a lot of philosophy within the book. I don't think it is, a, it's a science book in one way because there's lots of scientific ideas in there, but I think it's also a lot about how we try, you know, how we can take some of these ideas and they can change the way that we view our lives. And 
how we can, you know, with, for instance, with consciousness and with, in fact, the whole basis of the mind, you know, one of the things I wanted to deal with in that chapter, which at one point was about 100,000 words, um, was the fact that don't always beat yourself up when you've done something wrong, when you feel that you've failed, because you have to realise, to use the words of, of a great autodidact, Ken Campbell, you is just one of the things your brain does. And once you realise that you is just one of the things your brain does, that every single moment, every single day, there are loads of things that are going on in your brain unconsciously, unheard, which are taking you in different directions. You're not that you think you're steering the car, but you know what? You might just be sitting on the knees of the thing that is really steering the car. I think this book really feels strongly like it's a, a, um, almost like a, a manual for coping with science and coping with all, all these different areas of, of knowledge. And you deal with the kind of the old criticism or, or objection to falling in love with science, which is that, oh, but then all the romance is gone or all the wonder is gone. And you, you argue strongly against that and say that the world's more wonderful when you look at it this way. Um, I think that comes through very clearly. The, how did you begin to collaborate with Brian Cox? And, and how do you, when you're, you know, as a comedy writer, collaborating with an academic who's not a comedy writer, how do you divide the work up? Or, or to what extent are you teaching each other how to do the other person's job? Or do you stay in lane? How does it work? Yeah, well, do you know what? We just sit and we chat. We, we talk a lot. And, and, you know, we have a lot of conversations and ask him a lot of questions. And it's a very, I mean, for instance, on the live shows, very often there's a, a, an interesting bit of reverse engineering that's definitely occurred in the last two that we've done, which is when we were developing the one that we did in 2019, we were just, we, we were happening to do a science festival together. And I was doing 40 minutes for him and then he was doing 50 minutes after. And I said, Brian, if you get a chance, if you're not in the dressing room, I'm going to do a poem near the end of this set and I think the poem possibly fits in with the show that we're working on about the nature of time and it was a show in fact it's in the book it's it's the the show about build, when you're building a den with your child and you wonder if it's going to be the last time that you build a den with your child because they're growing older and it's about all of these different senses of, of, of the movement of time and the passing of time and he heard that and he was like immediately went oh yeah 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 we need to put that at the end of the show that's going to be great and and then he kind of reverse engineered some of the content beforehand so that things built towards this moment which is a poem not not science it's a poem and then and so we would end the show with me reading this poem not reading reciting this poem uh about the passing of time and about the fragility of of of, of the moments in our existence and brian had previously had talked about things like the block universe so all of that fitted in these ideas that in the block universe moments of time remain forever so though you are not able to go back to those moments of time they are within the block universe which is i think a, a great consolation and solace to, to many people and is connected to the work of einstein um, and and then Brian would just come out at the end and say, you know, that the laws that mandate there must be life in the universe, the laws that mandate there must be death. And, and it was quite a kind of philosophical moment. Mm. And then we would have George Harrison's All Things Must Pass would play. And it was, you know, and it was a really... And then in the new show that we're doing, again, I was just sat on a tr station platform one day, knowing this wasn't written for the show. I was on the way to a festival and I suddenly got an idea for a poem and I just wrote this poem down. And again, I then... A month later, when we started talking about the show, and Brian already knew most of the scientific content that he thought he was going to deal with, and I said, I think this poem fits. And in fact, not only did it fit, this was before I knew what was going to be in the show, it fitted 
almost, you know, so prescient that it could mean that the laws of physics are wrong when it comes to the nature of telepathy. No, it doesn't mean that. But it is, um, and again, so now the show has started to become slightly reverse engineered. Because of the poem that's going to appear near the end, there's ways that the beginning has changed and the middle has changed. So it's, it's in that way. You know that which is, and we are. Yeah, there's no grand plan. I mean, Brian does most of the grand planning. If there's anything like that, because he wants to know. Right, I want a graphic of this black hole. And I want it to look like that. So of course, you know, he's particularly led by the magnificent graphics that can be created now. But yeah, it's it's not a. The, the, there's no. We we don't sit down with hundreds of post-it notes and kind of you know very carefully. We we just we just talk together. And that's what we're going to try and do with the new tour as well, which is, you know, uh, it's going to be a different way than we've done it before, which is there's no kind of introduction to me. I'm just going to kind of wander on and wander off at times and say, you do know that everyone in row B looks highly confused. I think we need to unpack that. And that's quite a nice way of doing things. I mean, I very much sense it, sorry, but a lot of the way that the shows are, you know, whether it's the Infinite Monkey Cage, the Infinite Monkey Cage is slightly different, I think, but but overall, one of the things that I always have to work out is at what point do the audience start to feel uncomfortable, uncertain? At what point are they beginning to think, am I the only one who's not getting this? And that is the point in which I can come on and people can relax a little bit and then hopefully as well as being kind of just mucking around so people can just enjoy something which is total, you know, now you can rest. You don't have to make any notes during this moment. Um, but also then in that period of time, unpack some of those ideas so they are less afraid of them when the show starts again. Mm. Do you think that um, is that approach of having a conversation and, and seeing what comes out of it and then defining the structure, is that how you approach this book itself because you spoke to about 100 people I think some of them you spoke to for your last book I realized the other day as well I just wondered what the what the process was of, of those going from those conversations to this book yeah I mean very much I mean initially there weren't going to be that many you know uh, I wasn't going to talk to that many people and then lockdown happened and suddenly everyone was available you know Jane Goodall was available you know uh, Apollo astronauts were available it was you know all of these things so, so um but it did change a great deal I mean I, I always forget that I found my plans for the book from March 2020 and there's four chapters that didn't make it at all and you know as you know probably if you've seen it at the back of the book with with the uh, you know the acknowledgments and the thanks uh, there's more people listed who were interviewed who aren't in the book than people who actually appear in the book and all of that was just with every conversation my opinion can change it, you know, all the time. It, so, so I never went in there thinking, this is what the chapter's about. I need to ask this person this, this, and this. And this is how I do all the things. It's how I do my podcasts. It's how I do every conversation is I fill my brain up with stuff, and then we just start talking. And then more often than not, the three points that I thought we were going to hit are not hit at all. We've gone off in a totally different direction. And and that's why I, I, I like everything to be a conversation in that way. It's like when I used to get asked to have debates with religious people. And I said, nah, I won't do debate, but I'll happily have a conversation. Why do we always, as you were saying, but that this idea that everything is a battle, that everything is, you know, ideology versus ideology. Mm. And we don't find our common ground if we set something up as a debate because the ego is immediately I wish to be victorious but if you just have a nice chat 
you start to go, oh, that's interesting. I mean, like, there's a couple of Victor Stock, who's the former dean of Guildford Cathedral, who's in the book and who I love talking to. You know, we we imagine one day that we must surely have some huge disagreement because he dis, you know, he believes in God. Uh, he is, you know, got very high up in the church, all these things, and you know, I'm an atheist, and I'm probably far more left wing than he is, I would imagine. And yet, we may mainly have common ground. We mm. kind of just, you know, in terms of empathy and 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 humility and and trying to to be as helpful as possible to people. That's kind of, and we just go, oh, we're not very good telly. We'd never be on telly because telly is always like we're joined with a religious person. I'm furious and would like to have everyone who's an atheist crucified. And we're joined by an atheist person. Hello, there's no God. You're all going to die. You're nothing more than dust. You know, that's what they want. So you're advocating a kind of anti-drama. Yeah, I think you find out far more interesting. So all of my favourite films are films, well, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them are not that simple goody versus baddie narrative. They're something which can sometimes have a dreamlike quality. They're, you know, It's one of the reasons I know I always find a way of mentioning Samuel Beckett, but one of the things that I love about Beckett, whether it's Endgame or Waiting for Godot or, or Crap's Last Tape, is there is not one defined meaning within it. There's not there's this, and it turns out that that person is that, or Godot is this. You can watch it, and you can take separate things from it. Everything is a Rorschach test, and I think that is, you know, that's one of the things I would love to. The next book, well, one of the books that I'm working on now is 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 a book about reality, and I think the realization that our experience of the world very often is a Rorschach test. That we 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 constantly imagine that the information is just being fed into us. And we're seeing it objectively. But of course, you know, we are every vision that we see, every image that we see is in some way edited by our previous experience, Mm. uh, by our culture, by so many other things. And so we see the world. We are an active participant in our interpretation of the images and the noises that we we see in here. And you have a chapter about about some of those aspects in this book, um, which I'd like to come back to in a little while. But uh, did just on the point of um, contacting so many people and being in lockdown, as you mentioned, that you suddenly have access to all these people that wouldn't have been available. Um, did that change? I think that didn't change how you felt about kind of live gigging. And I, I just heard you speaking to um, Stuart Lee, a recording of that from earlier in this year. And, and you were talking about you don't really think that comedy shows can really be done online. Is that? Yeah, well, I, I think you can create really entertaining shows online mm. i don't think you can create stand-up online mm. i think you can create a very you know I, I i've seen people do brilliant things and be enormously entertaining but i think it's a different form of entertainment mm. i think the live element i mean the first gig that i had back um having not performed at all for 14 months yes mm. for, for which is the longest period of time in my adult life that i'd not performed in front of an audience by a huge margin and you go on stage and there was a beautiful thing, which is the audience was sat there looking as if to go, how do we act as an audience? We've not done this for ages. And the performers stand there going, this is a strange situation, isn't it? I'd forgotten that this is what I do. I stand in front of people and try to please them. And uh, once it kicks in, and the first gig I did back, I thought it was fine and we all had fun. But I knew that my brain wasn't quite working yet. And then the next time that I did it, everything, gig two, boom, there we go, we're back. Mm. And that connection and the way that your brain can operate and the tangents, I mean, certainly for me anyway, the tangents that I can go on and the places that I can explore uh, in stand-up are not necessarily available to me all the time. Mm. 
there is a separate version and i think it's the nearest version what i do think it, it is is stand up for me personally and and any kind of pu- public performance is the nearest that i get to how my brain is for me listening to it whereas of course the moment we're doing things like this uh, or i'm having a conversation with someone or whatever there are lots of social niceties and there are lots of kind of different uh, ways in which that's being funneled whereas when i'm on stage suddenly the the explosion occurs and as usual people then just go oh by the way just we, we watched your show and here are the uh, 19 stories you didn't finish can you tell us at least the end of eight of them so we have some kind of closure for the show <laughs> you talk about that in the book as well the feeling of um feeling the most free uh, when you're on stage creating nonsense you say and um and i heard you make a similar point in the mid 2000s when you were touring with with ricky gervais in, as part of a kind of b- him bullying you sketch that the only rest you get is in front of 2000 people but immediately when you said that i thought that it sounded like it had a lot of truth in it uh, even not the bullying part necessarily i don't know maybe you could say but uh, the feeling of kind of freedom and and authenticity maybe that you can access when on stage yeah, it's interesting because in the Ricky tour, that was a different kind of freedom. That was merely it was an escape from him uh, goading me and making weird noises and jumping out at me and doing all those other things. Um, though the actual performance itself did not feel as much, a, it, it, you know, that was almost, that was during a period of time where I think I was finding out the voice I could really use on stage. Because I think for 10 years or more, I was a stand-up uh, and I wrote, jokes and I improvised but I don't think I was me on stage I think I was playing a part on stage and I think now really at least for the last 15 years more and more every single night it's a version of it you know if anyone doesn't like the talk that I've done or the stand-up show that I've done then they actually don't like me it's a kind of quite a personal thing Mm. because and that's why a lot of people do have a mask or have a different kind of version of themselves is because it means that if, if an audience say we hate you they hate you they actually hate you and that's you know an interest uh but now i i you know th- through years and years of doing this and mainly because I, d- I did a show which ended with me punching a melon and then singing mustang sally but i'm not going to tell you any more than that um uh, i suddenly w- worked out what i was doing wrong and it suddenly became just blindingly but then again those are facet those bl- the moments where everything becomes blindingly obvious and again going back to this this guy that i had a very long conversation with about adhd at 52 years old suddenly it was blindingly obvious what the battle one of the battles that i was having and then to to be given to, for someone to say you see this is what your mind is you know doing this is what's going on is now means at the age of 52 with the current talks that i'm doing i've now got another level of freedom that's come to me so you know it keeps changing all the time but i think each time i get a little bit closer to to representing how how my brain really is however terrifying that might be for some people it sounds very um you're making yourself very vulnerable that way it sounds kind of very attractive as well to find that that kind of self-exploration and and to kind of commune with some version of yourself that you that you can't access in other places um you I know you've spoken to, I think it was Lenny Henry, and he had a very different view of that about, and, and you, you've kind of mentioned this just now about having personas that you create as work or as, as defense mechanisms even, and then you have your real self in private. Um, how do you react to that version, that view? Because it seems like um, 
either he's missing something or you are <laughs> or, or, or is that too See, polarizing I, I think Lenny's missing something yeah. there I, I, I think he uh, it's very interesting that for him he's really it seems to me become more and more comfortable in himself as he's become uh, a lauded actor uh, and you know acting is turns out was you know and the way he's able to explore things there and also with his writing I, I, I think he's found a different way of doing it uh, whereas and I think a lot of the stand-ups that he was talking about when we were having that conversation it might be about a different form of ego that they go up there and they're bigging themselves up and then they think they are this great I am and that's where the disparity happens whereas I don't think the kind of the the version that I'm thinking of is a great I am I think you know the version whether you see someone like Hannah Gadsby you know or Josie Long or any of these people who are able to be tremendously honest in what they are talking about um, in many different ways I think there is I think one of the freedom the freedom that actually comes from being able to be some version of yourself is uh, that we live... I think there's a reason that English language culture has stand-up is such a big thing, is because in a lot of kind of English language nations, uh, people are... We have a tradition of, of keep calm, carry on, don't say anything, come on, everything's jolly good, everything's jolly good. Oh, no, the soup's fine. Yes, everything's jolly good. And then inside you're going, wasn't that soup terrible? Nothing was fine. It's awful. You know, it's the J.G. Ballard thing of the fact that when someone, you know, bumps into you in the street and then you go, oh, sorry, 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 mate, sorry, mate. And then you go around the corner and you go, that clumsy idiot wasn't looking where they were going. So you've got this perpetual conflict between the way you are presenting yourself and then actually your real emotions. Mm. Um and that's why I think, you know, for, for me personally, it's like I, I think I can't be any more honest pretty much than I am when I'm on stage. That's probably the most honest that I am. And it doesn't mean that there's still not bits that I'm covering up or things that I might not share or things that I decide for many different reasons or not. And then equally, you end up with this very interesting relationship with an audience, which I was saying to someone the other day, it almost becomes kind of priestly in its own way, which is if an audience trusts you, and in particular, if you go into certain areas of of, of, of tension and and of our worries and anxieties as a whole, people will often come up to you afterwards and say, I'm really glad you talked about that, or I've been going through this thing. And they know that you are a stranger, a stranger that they trust, and this is probably the only conversation you'll ever have with them, and they can suddenly tell you something that's been going on in their life and slightly unburden themselves and then move on. And and I think that is a really, to me, can be a very, very beautiful relationship in the possibility of of, of stand-up and live performance, is that you you are trying, you, you want people, I mean, it, it's something I've, I talk about more and more now, is the older I've got, the more I realize, you know, we all want to be useful and it's wonderful to be useful. That thing that when you know that, like, I love it when sometimes parents come up to me and they say, you know, we bring our son to see your shows. And one of the things that he really likes, he goes, you see, mum, that's how my head works. And they see, a, you know, a guy who's in his 50s, who's obviously making a living going off on all these tangents and they go, oh, good. There's someone who, you know, because I, I feel strange and I feel alone and I feel weird. And then it turns out, that was probably the journey of that person as well, and now they're on stage, mm-hmm. um, and I and I think that is you know can be very very useful for me and for them. It, that sounds uh, yeah, that sounds terrific. But I'm just wondering about how that ma- matches on to dealing with scientific topics because I think it is a natural fit. I don't know what you think about this, but this kind of um, this radical openness and. And self-deprecating style, you know, really reducing your own status on the stage to to um, to a, a humble figure in the face of these scientific topics that you talk about. That seems like that approach. Not only is it comforting for a lot of people and, and allows you to 
safely take them into these challenging topics. But it, it's also the spirit of science, isn't it, to be open in that way and, and to have no ego as you approach the topic. Yeah, I mean, I think it is useful if, if if someone sees someone who appears to make a living doing a radio show about science and they say, I don't understand this idea either. This idea is really hard. These things take time. I don't just pick up a brief history of time, finish it and go, brilliant, that's all of Stephen Hawking's mind downloaded into my head. And it's something that I, I've been talking about a lot, actually, while I've been touring is saying, you know, with science books, what you need to realise is, you know, when you're reading a book of history or you're reading most novels, not all novels, but most novels, you are dealing with a world that is very easy to sketch in your your head very quickly if you you know so 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 that is kind of a useful thing to think that when you're dealing with scientific ideas very often they're on a scale which is not your world so to sketch an image of the change of time on one side of the event horizon of a black hole to falling in and are going over the event horizon your brain doesn't have a shortcut you know, apart from maybe it has a, and if it does have this shortcut, it's one of no use whatsoever. The Ernest Borgnine Walt Disney movie, The Black Hole. So everything takes longer and everything's a bit slower. And I think because we're worried that people will think that we're an idiot or whatever, people just don't want to admit either they don't understand an idea. And again, that goes back to the fear of embarrassment. Uh, avoid the idea rather than try and engage with the idea. Because It's a bit like when you, on, on a different thing, but I think there is a similarity. There are so many people on the internet who judge people all the time. And the best way to make sure that you are not a hypocrite is to do nothing whatsoever. If you do nothing, you can judge everyone. And there's lots of people who do that. Oh, they are casting aspersions on so many people. And they're, oh, I see you haven't done a, you've done a thing for this charity, but you haven't done a thing for that charity, have you? Well, which charity are you working for? Which charity are you giving to? Well, ah, that's not the point, is it? No, because you're not doing anything. And that's how you're so pristine. And I think that opening up and saying, do you know what? We're very conflicted creatures. Mm. And we are and it is a real battle and it, and i certainly it's taken years and years to more and more open myself up and say sorry can you run me past that? I, I don't understand that i think we've all done that thing where someone has explained an idea to us and we've nodded and we've gone oh yeah oh yeah no i've read that book and we've lied we haven't read that book and then we, we've we've nodded all the way through their conversation and then we leave and we've taken in nothing because we didn't have that point one minute in where we just said sorry i, I didn't quite understand what you meant with that first term so then we listen to them talking about that first term for 15 minutes. Our fear of embarrassment has meant we've really just wasted their time and hours. Mm. So, so that's one of the things that, you know, that does motivate me. It's because I do think people are, I think people really do want to engage with these ideas. I think they really want to know more. Mm. And, but social nicety, not even, it's not even social niceties. Whatever it is, they, they just, we're so scared. So many of us are so scared all of the time. And I think that's, I mean, that, that comes from, um, I mean, personally, you know, I've a lot of anxiety. I have less anxiety when I'm on stage than I have at any other time. And when, uh, and, and even then, throughout any talk or any stand-up show, there is a voice in my head all the time going, are they happy? Do you think they're all right? Are they happy? Are they okay? I hope they're okay. Are they okay? Were they expecting this? Maybe they weren't expecting this. I hope they're okay. That's going on all the time, but it's less than when I'm just wandering around mm. on my own or getting on a train or whatever. And so I think that when you start to understand your own neuroses, it allows you to reach out a little bit for other people mm -hmm. and say, uh, you know, oh, I have this in my head. Do you have it in your head? Yes, I do. And it's, I mean, I love that story of Robin Williams where, you know, when, when he died, there were so many beautiful stories of, uh, about him. And someone said, you know, one of the reasons that he would reach out so often and, and want to make people laugh was because he really understood 
the the pain of 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 anxiety and melancholy and all of those things and he didn't want other people to to have that and i think and i hope this doesn't sound too highfalutin but i think quite a few of the people that i i i work with in terms of artists and people who i'm close friends with i think that's one of the things that that drives us mm. is we really do want people to be happier and um, because in our mind we have also know that that maybe not as, as as deep or as dark as some people's experiences but that bit of of having that sense of melancholy and fear close to you mm. i think means that it can drive you to go i want other people to be happier mm. and i want them not to be scared and i want them to be able to look at the stars and i want them to pay, take part in this adventure and i want them to look at animals and think about the tree of life and i want them to think about how they're related to all of the other living things on the earth and how beautiful that connection is and i want them to think about the fact that when they're looking at a star all those photons have traveled an enormous distance and nothing's got in their way until they've got in the way of those photons and it's so lucky that they were the thing that got in the way of those photons because they're the thing that can question those photons and look at the beauty of those photons and all of those things um, you, you mentioned somewhere in there about being politically on the left and, and um, thinking about modern UK political discourse and US, I guess, but that, that's a place of extreme polarisation as well. Do you think that this, um, this spirit of dialogue that is not um, polarised is coming from noticing polarisation or is it just a natural part of ageing or is it being a parent? Um, how does it fit into the kind of wider world that you live in um, that kind of humane open dialogue I don't, I, it's interesting I, don't, I mean I, I think some of it probably comes from the way that I was brought up and the kind of uh, um, just the values interestingly I mean even though I, yeah, I, I, would, I would say I came from a kind of casually right wing household and was certainly the, the furthest on the left but I was brought up with a certain set of kind of, you know, checking on everyone and making sure that other people are doing okay and to, to have that. Mm. And uh, and so I think some of it comes from that. I think being a parent has certainly changed me enormously. Uh, I, I I think that I was terrified, terrified of being a, a father. And I was, I, I can't remember if I ever wrote about it in one of the books, actually, mm. the fact that when I would go to sleep at night, I would sometimes think it's probably better I just die in my sleep because I've got no idea how to be a father. I mean, well, but this is just terrifying. And then, of course, the moment that you, your child is born, then suddenly loads of things kick in and uh and i think you know growing up with my son who's now nearly 14 he is a great education to me in you know in in ways of approaching the world and what our values should be mm. and and also in opening up emotionally about certain kind of ideas when you can because i'm quite a kind of closed i mean as you might have not i don't know if you noticed or not but the book is dedicated to my eldest sister and one of the reasons the book's dedicated to my oldest sister is because i'm in a family where we don't ever really talk about love but we all get on really well and we all help each other and all of that stuff i'm very very close but we don't have that language is kind of unavailable just because of the, the 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 reality we were brought up in. But it's not true of the way that I bring up my son. That's, t that's totally different. But for some reason, and when my sister found out, I, I had to give her a copy of the book early. And my wife said, tell her. And I said, uh, oh, tell her, tell her. And, I was, and she went, what, what? And I said, oh, look at the opening bit of the book. And then she looked and I could see that she was moved by it. 
and uh, and then she said, "I'd I, I I'd like to hug you, but I know we don't do that." <laughs> you know what I mean? So that was so. I think some of it also is finding the different language, the different ways of expressing things, which sometimes can be so deeply within us that we'll never get that kind of, you know, that great American moment where suddenly everyone hugs and everyone talks about themselves, whatever. You don't, might not be that big moment, Mm. but instead you can make lots of little moments that might mean a lot more Mm. and find ways of circumnavigating some of the things, some of the kind of strange walls that we've built up. But yeah, there's so many different sides, I, I, I think, that have led to me it, it's. I mean, it's very much in the. I think writing the last book, "I'm a Joke and So Are You," was mm. was one that was another big step for me because when I wrote that book and some of the things that I dealt with in that book, then I would have conversations with people. You know, once the book was out there, people would come up to me and they would suddenly talk to me about these, you know, incredible and terrible experiences that they'd had, and and I and again I found out I understood more and more about the number of people that when they leave their house every single morning basically put on a, 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 an overcoat of disguise as to who they are a protective shell and go right let's just get through one more day and and many of them will never confront any of those things and they'd feel embarrassed to not emba- but they feel embarrassed because oh, I'm making such a fuss and it's nothing really you know that thing that's why they would do it is because they think oh no but there are people who are really going through pain and there's some people I know who you know every single day is a real challenge Mm-hmm. And the more that I've met those people and the more that I've talked to people who've kind of dealt with some of those issues, I think the more that I've wanted to to be part of that. And in some ways, I do think this book, you know, certainly the chapter on death, and I hope to some extent the chapter on things like, you know, doubt and the way that we need to use it and, and when we don't need to argue about God and those kind of ideas, I, I think some of that is, is very much in, imbued with the ideas that I found out when I was writing the previous book. That sounds like a much richer and more um, emotionally kind of um, nourishing version of of um, the thing I was just about to ask you about, which was that at one point uh, you say that that asking interviewing these people, um, you have to ask the dumb questions, you have to be the stupidest person in the room, and that this is not always good for the ego, but it's very good for my education. And on you know, looking at it that way, that that doesn't make science sound very appealing. It, it sounds sounds like you'd be quite you know vulnerable in a bad way there. But the thing that you've just said is that it gives you access to a lot of a, a richer world. Um, can you say something about how you kind of persuade people into the into the scientific fold, as it were, and 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 how do you how do you reassure them using the things you just talked about? I think so much of it is it just it it makes every image that you see it make, can make every experience so much richer if you have more information about that if you have you know I think of someone like Joan Feynman and Joan Feynman spent her life studying the aurora borealis that was one of her main projects she got to a very deep understanding of the aurora borealis but the opening moment of her experience with the aurora borealis was lying on the grass with her brother Richard on a golf course outside New York and they looked at the Aurora Borealis and the first experience is an experience of kind of, it's a transcendent experience. It's an experience of look at this beauty. Oh, that what is, how can the universe and how can our planet have these moments of such a spectacle for us? And then later on it becomes, but why does it exist? Mm. And I think that's one of the things, the starting point is the starting point is, and it's what often gets missed out in science education, I think, is that many scientific endeavours start with a transcendent moment. 
or a moment of uh, a revelatory daydream or a moment of failure in something. There are so many different ways which don't they don't start off with someone going, let's have a look at this thing. Get me the hammer and the chisel. Knock, knock, knock. Yes, right, there we go. I've worked out. It starts off with look at that beautiful thing. Look at that. And then so, so that to me is the way in. The way in is that once you start realizing there is a thing of beauty and that then when you find out about the magnetosphere and when you find out about why you are getting this display of light, you are still have the beauty in its entirety. Mm. And you also go, do you know someone else that's fascinating about that? I now know what that particular color there, why are we getting that kind of experience? So that just means that you are, it's like when you realize, I mean, I wrote about geology in the book and you know, talking to Chris Jackson, that sense of when you are looking at a hill and you start to think that that hill has been in motion for a very long time and that hill may well have been under the ocean for a long time and inside that hill may well be the kind of things that are normally fossils you would normally only find on the seabed you know the, the, these kind of the, these should only be found deep deep down um and that there's a lovely uh, i mean i love the, the conversation that i have with someone who was talking about the idea of in certain cultural groups uh, a noun is often a verb as well so the fact that a hill also hills, and I think a hill really hills once you start to know a little bit about geology, once you start to hear those stories of mountaineers who go up to the top of a rock and go to, at the peak of the mountain, they go, I found a, sh there's a shellfish. Does this mean shellfish used to fly? What's it, you know, suddenly, and it's that importance of the idea that um, there's, a, there's a lovely line. Um, uh, I, I was chatting to, to a writer called Daniel Handler, and at one point Daniel Handler said one of the things that made him so happy to be brought up Jewish was that in the Jewish tradition you're allowed to answer a question with a question. And I think that's what, to me, makes it such an engaging thing, is to go into a room and realise that, first of all, no one there has the ultimate knowledge. You can go into certain priestly places and there is someone there who holds the ultimate knowledge or there is a book that holds the ultimate knowledge or into certain cult groups or whatever it might be or certain forms of politics. Here is the one manual that says this is the way that we will create a better world. But once you realise that everyone in there is in a different kind of form of doubt, is in a different, you know, that, that famous line about, you know, if, if anyone ever says they understand quantum mechanics, they don't understand quantum mechanics, right? So that's a, that's a lovely line. And then you could, if you want, just immediately go oh well that's good i don't understand quantum mechanics hooray victory but then of course you realize that i don't understand quantum mechanics but i don't understand quantum mechanics to the same level that professor brian cox doesn't understand quantum mechanics but we are both united by not understanding it but we don't understand it at different levels of not understanding it so all of those things when you're in that room even though in one way you're thinking oh man these people know so much how can i why then but if you're immediately beaten down by that yeah then you've, you've lost the game, haven't you? Mm. If you just go, right, I'm going to explain that I don't know anything. And nearly every good person that I know that I've ever interviewed, if I can think of only maybe two or three, maybe more, I'm not going to think on a list, like, but it's not a very long list of people that I thought, oh, you're arrogant and you're so pleased with yourself for knowing so much. Mm. Nearly all of the people that I engage with, whether it's philosophical, whether it's artistic, whether it's scientific, uh, who know far more than me, are over the moon to be asked about things, to share the idea, to discuss the ideas, to listen to the questions. And so Brian Green, who is someone whose work I absolutely love, and uh, his um, his most recent book, Until the End of Time, is magnificent. Other people listening to this might have read things like The Elegant Universe and you know, written very interestingly about string theory. And Brian Green is someone that whenever I talk to Brian Green, I see a, a beautiful openness. 
where sometimes, like with his last book, I think I've interviewed him about three or four times about that book, and sometimes I've asked him some of the same questions. Uh, and he's always answered them slightly differently because I think sometimes there's been a slight word change. Sometimes there's been a slightly different approach to that, that question by me. Sometimes that question's come after something else we've talked about. He is always engaged mm. with what is going on. He is never on autopilot of like, this is what I know. And here's another equation that I know that you probably don't know. He is just he he wants everyone to be as excited as he is mm. he's a brilliant communicator um i spoke to him on on this program before as well and um yeah he's he i i was struck by how open he was to integrating religious experience with scientific experience and different scales of experience and and not having to make hard um uh, binaries out of those perhaps conflicting types of experience which is you know really reassuring and, and it felt good it felt like a relief from the kind of rabid certainty that you get you know in the, it's particularly in in the new atheism kind of stuff that's i guess it's died down a little bit now that kind of strident scientific um approach to religion uh, in in public discourse i mean i think we really have to fight against our sense of superiority. Mm. And I think that's what some people saw from some of those voices was there was a point uh, where it could be interpreted as a sense of superiority. And, and that seems to me not a good reason to want to go on, to a, on any form of intellectual journey mm. is to then feel that you're better than someone else. Mm. Um, I mean, I was, I was asked the other day about conspiracy theories um, and uh, someone was asking me about how do you argue with a flat earther and I said ultimately you probably don't bother arguing at all. It's actually a waste of time because if someone's actually reached that point You've had to jettison so many things to be able to believe that the Earth is flat. Uh, so the the real problem is we need to have heard those voices before they became flat earthers because very often the thing that drives people towards conspiracy theories is is they do want to have the feeling of superiority, of special knowledge. And sometimes that's happened because they've not had a happy life because things have not worked out as they'd hoped, because things have gone wrong. And so it's to have a society where those voices are heard when they're first in despair mm. and that not that despair is kept secret and that someone is prepared to share that despair because once that despair can take you into a very, very dark and unpleasant place with conspiracy theories because no one just believes in one conspiracy theory, I don't think. I think mm. once you believe in one, you and for something like Flat Earth, that can lead to some really pretty unpleasant beliefs as well mm. about the way that the world works. And this is part of the subject of the first chapter of the book, isn't it? There's 12 chapters in the book and it starts with scepticism with the C because with the K that is a philosophically special thing isn't it with a K or is it just yeah American? I never quite the Americans <laughs> do it with a K we do it with a C that's as simple as that. I, I didn't deal with the, the 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 philosophy on that one but I'm sure you're right the, the I, I I went with uh, with Bertrand Russell spelling on that one well that's probably good enough for most people uh, so I wanted to ask you about the style in which you approach these particularly conspiracy theories you know you, or um, you talk about many many different areas of human knowledge and you um you uh, present them in a similar way which is through conversation you know conversation evidenced um kind of um explanation where it's you explaining it and I was th it reminded me in some sense of 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 john ronson and louis theroux but without the kind of i i get a sense of um performative not sneering from them, but it's they're, they're they're playing up the awkwardness for comic value in a way that you didn't ever do, and you actually argued against. 
So it, it felt like it, you had a different take on those things, but you still dealt with some of the same material. Did you ever think of going into doing a, a, a longer, more kind of ethnographic deep dive into those conspiracy worlds? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to, pretty much every single chapter I'd like to have written a whole book about mm -hmm. because the moment you start just chipping away, and that's why I think, you know, this this book, similar to Infinite Monkey Cage, so is with luck, what it is is at the end of certain chapters, people will go, God, I really want to know more about that. I, I was glad to see someone tweeted the other day that they'd enjoyed the book. They said, but the annoying thing is I've now made such an enormous list of other books that I need to read. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm hoping this is a kind of, you know, a gateway drug to another library for a lot of people. Um, but I would love to have done because I, I, I think, but in the end, I think the trouble with a lot of books about conspiracy theories is that we end up really concentrating on the conspiracy. Mm. And the it's to me, the interesting thing, as you were saying, that is how we get to the need for conspiracy, not the conspiracy mm. itself. In, in some ways, it reminds me of things like, yeah, I think Hallie Rubenhold's uh, book, The Five, about the five victims of Jack the Ripper, is a very interesting book because it suddenly changes so much to me in terms of those narratives so many of those books about murderers where where you end up you know you your supposed fascination with the murderer it's all about the murderer and actually they're pretty boring characters in reality i've spoken to people you know who who've who've dealt with with murder and they go it's not these flamboyant individuals that you see in the movies these mm -hmm. strange dark serial killers who are reading nietzsche and you know whatever it is they're normally, even the ones who are reading Nietzsche, are pretty dull people. Um, the interesting story is actually about the victims mm. and why they've ended up in that situation and how many of them have were then, you know, unfortunately in a position which meant they were more likely to be. That's where the interesting story is. And I think that's, in, in, to me, it's a little bit like books on ghosts. To me, the interesting thing is not about ghosts. It's about why we believe in ghosts. That, that is always what I'm interested in. Is how do we get to the point that we believe in the things that we believe in. Mm. And then what those things are is just a kind of, you can make that as a fun poster. Mm. Going back to Brian Greene for a sec, if you push him on philosophical foundations, he, he ultimately says, yeah, I, I just prefer that. Or, you know, or choosing between interpretations of quantum mechanics, I don't understand the stuff either, but the bottom line is he just... Uh, he says this is really comes down to preference. There's different, you know, you have to pick your poison which philosophical consequences can you cope with if it's proliferating multiple worlds? Well, we've just got to go for that because that means that we don't have to have this other kind of problem that just sounds really odd odd to me, you know. So it comes down to taste. And that doesn't seem, that's not a scientific decision ultimately. That That is a philosophical decision or it's, some, it's in some other area of, of your thought that that decision takes place. Um, have you hit that brick wall with with Brian Cox, say, or with Brian Green, with or with scientists, where you just say, "Well, why did you decide to look at it that way?" Yeah, yeah. I mean, that does, but that's interesting because I think most of them would also say, "Well, I know this this bit is not science now. This mm. bit is philosophy." Mm. And I think it's an interesting thing that, in one way, if you look at biology, biology, where of course biologists, you know, like to show off about the fact, "Yeah, we've got a final theory, and you haven't yet." Physics, ha ha. You know, but biology is. As far as I can see, that there you have very tangible tests that are possible, and there you are being able to refute certain ideas. You say, "Look, we've managed to do this." Now, when you get to a certain point 
in physics, it does seem that you are, you know, string theory, etc. Or when we were talking about consciousness as well, you know, both of those things, I think there is a point where you go, exactly, this is a philosophical perspective, until this becomes a testable hypothesis. And it seems that on certain levels, that as yet, we do not have the access to creating the, the either the knowledge or the technology for making these things a testable hypothesis. Mm. So that's an interesting thing to me, you know, which is where you go, this is from the realms of science, but this is not science. Science is required to get to this philosophical point, but now this point is philosophical. Mm. When you t- uh, In the second chapter, which is about atheism, I think you talk about this kind of reverie, feeling of reverie there as well, that you can have a kind of religious experience or a transcendent experience from just noticing something wonderful in nature. Um, and do you think that that is something that is that is necessary in comedy as well, in comedy writing? For example, when you is it part of noticing things and being kind of struck by them in a way that other people might not notice them? Well, I've always said that, you know, comedians are very lazy scientists. We would never be bothered to go all the way to the end of a paper. We just get to the end of a punchline and go, well, I've investigated that particular idea about the behaviour of gorillas as far as I need to because I've got a joke out of it. Um, so there is, a, I think there is a similar journey in terms of curiosity because you have to go, it is the what-if nature of it. You know, comedy is a what-if. Science very often is, a is well, I mean, it is. it's, it's, it's a, a what-if. Let's have a look at this. What if this does this? then where would that lead? So so th- that is, in that way, it is a similar process. Mm. When you talk about time, you talk about um, the, a, what you call a palimpsest view of time, which is a great dictionary moment in the book, of which there are a few. And that was the one where you have uh, multiple versions of something overwritten on each other, and you sort of see them happen all, all at once. And you talk about a, a little, you have a vignette where you're in the street in Cambridge, I think it was. Yeah, that was just, uh, when I wanted, I wanted to talk about time in lots of different perspectives and uh, as well as geological, archaeological, and then obviously eventually a kind of Einsteinian view. And um, I, I wanted to think about those, again, stories that kind of become richer with information, even if they are still fabulous stories. Um, so very often we see time as a line and then obviously we talked a little bit about the idea of block universe time as well and then sometimes I do that psychogeographical sense of time that you can be standing somewhere like just before I started writing this book I was up on the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides and I was standing in the middle of the Stones of Kalanish and I touched one of the Stones of Kalanish and as I did I thought of all of the other people who put their palm on that stone and I had this kind of very vivid image of all of those different people in different footwear or in no footwear, seeing different boats, seeing different ships out the sea, having different gods in the sky than the gods in the sky that might have been for the person who stood there a hundred years later or whatever it might be. Um, and then in Cambridge, it was, it was just absolutely silent Sunday night. And after a science festival, there was no one in the streets. And I suddenly, I think because I was walking past those ornate buildings, I started to just see lots of different people in different kind of pre- professorial garb and student garb and cyclists in the 1960s and you know kind of ban the bomb cyclists and mid 19th century cyclists on rickety bikes because I saw them all overlaid on each other Mm. and it was just an experience I think from my mind of suddenly thinking of all of the time that has passed before the time that I have stood there and one of the reasons that I wanted to tell that story that sometimes that sense of time that is around you is that it's not scientific but it, it doesn't mean you're not allowed to have it And in fact, it was all of my thinking about time from a scientific perspective, from the work of of Einstein and and beyond and before, that led to me then having this beautiful little transcendent moment. Mm. 
and you know we 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 shouldn't dismiss those moments you know we should enjoy you know, when you sometimes get these moments where people say everyone just has a we need everyone to be reasonable and we need to just use reason and of course well we're not a reasonable creature we're we're a creature of emotion we are unable really to make decisions if if those people who have unfortunately had the the, the emotional core of the brain damaged and no longer really experience emotion they find it very very difficult to make decisions they would find it very difficult to you know if we didn't have emotions we wouldn't want to know about the universe we wouldn't want to know about the nature of stars we wouldn't want to know about mm. the wave particle duality to anything like that so i think you know this bit of of toying with the stories that can come out of like when you read great science fiction you know really interesting science fiction or you know the work of douglas adams or the work of philip k dick or ursula k Le Guin or margaret atwood or any of those people you know they've mixed science with the storytelling and, and it has made their imagination broader you've got more to imagine the more you know about the universe the more places you can do the what-if game. And a what-if game which is not to lead to a Nobel Prize in physics, but a what-if game that is just to lead to a, a, a wonderful sense of the joy of being in the world or a silly story or a strange story or that joke about a gorilla. Mm, and you make the point in the book as well that that leads a lot of people into science anyway, into science careers coming from science, science fiction, if whether on the TV or in books. Um I want to ask you about the practical consequences of of seeing particularly time in a different way. And and you mentioned the block universe. Um, What does that do for for things like free will? Oh, I don't get worried about that. I I've just I I did just buy a book uh, with an introduction by Mary Midgley the other day about free will, but I think it's uh, I try not to worry about free will because even if free will is an illusion, it's an illusion that you cannot override. You're in that illusion. You're just, you know, to me, there's a pragmatic side. I, I sometimes think all the debates about free will, that is when I can get frustrated by philosophy mm. because I'm not sure that it's of any use. I think it is of use, you know, those things talking about before where realizing that you're you are not fully in charge i think those things are very very useful the idea that free will is an illusion should not change you mm. because you can't do anything about it and you can't then live your life going now i'm aware that free will is an illusion i'm going to what are you going to do what are you going to make a choice now because you've decided that free will is an illusion no you've got nothing if you're saying well, what are you going to do you're going to sit there and just wonder if your body starts moving around no you can't do anything about it so i i, I, I free will being an illusion is is not one of my existential anxieties or hang-ups it's good to cross that one off the list anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what about the scale of the universe? That's what you move on to next. And you get, you, you know, a minute ago, you talked about a real amazing type of, of experiential beauty that's opened by knowing more about science. Um, and, and the kind of flip side of that is the kind of horror, existential horror that you can get by, for example, noticing or, or learning that the universe might be infinite, for example. How do you cope with those moments? I think, again, my coping, if I go back a few years, I still found that overwhelming. But just by spending enough time with it, now I don't. Now that I realise that, uh, first of all, again, a bit like free will, the size of the universe is not really an issue for my life. Uh, It is something fascinating and beautiful, and it is something remarkable when we find out that the universe expands faster than the speed of light, though nothing in the universe is allowed to, you know, move faster than the speed of light. I love all that stuff. I love finding out the fact that we are in a lucky time to be able to observe the expansion of the universe because there may be some smart creature far, far, far in the future where the universe has expanded to a point where they are not able to observe 
anything else expanding in the universe so they will not be able to see other galaxies so that again enriches my sense of you know the fortune of the time that we're in in terms of, of cosmology and then i can play with that idea that if it is infinite then we're having this confident you know conversation an infinite number of times in an infinite number of worlds that are both the same and an infinite number of worlds that are also slightly different so all of those things are fun to play with and sometimes you can still have that moment you can be lying on your bed and maybe you've got a skylight above you and you look out and you do just suddenly go whoa I suddenly just had that moment where the camera shot out at incredible speed and traveled through the universe and I got very very tiny and that's I mean I mentioned that in the book the nightmares that I had when I was a child about that but again it, it I, I've realized that if you spend well to me anyway spending time with some of these issues ultimately means that they become less frightening hmm your your comic devices in the book, I mean, you do a lot of different things, but you, you use a kind of, I would call it an English kind of bathos where you go go to a very everyday mundane punchline for for comic effect. Like, and you can do that coming from these cosmic things. It, it really has a real punch. Do you think that that can be a coping mechanism in a way for coping with the enormity of human experience because in addition to just living with the idea for a bit of a bit of a while it feels like comedy has something to offer there as well yeah well i think one of the things that comedy does is it underlines the absurdity and i, and I think we we make an enormous step forward the moment that we realize we're absurd and that this situation is absurd it's an absurd thing that you should have a universe that is, you know, of such size and the possibility that we will never communicate with anything else that is in the universe. I personally believe for no scientific reason because we don't know, but, you know, that it is ridiculous, the idea that we would be the only thing that was, you know, kind of had these questions and this level of inquiry in the universe. Um, but, yeah, so so I think once you go, this is ridiculous, ridiculous it's ridiculous to be born and very soon know that one day you're going to die that's absurd uh once you've got those absurdities on your on you know you're, you're beginning to take them under your belt you go yeah all right then this is really ridiculous and i think you know so many of the problems of the world are from, from people who cannot see their absurdity they are from those you know from those dictators and those generals and those puffed up people who are so you know that anything and, and which also means that they're always struggling about the fact that you know there is the puffed up general looking remarkable and then they have to run off to the toilet where they've got a terrible attack of diarrhea and they're fighting against the natural world all the time and maybe they're feeling a bit gassy or whatever it might be all of that is absurd you know, the absurdity of, of, of the, the presentation of who we wish to pretend that we are and the realisation of what is actually going on in our gurgling bodies you, um, you spoke to some astronauts or you spoke to Chris Hatfield you wrote about some others I think you spoke to Nicole Stott as well I spoke to, to Chris, Nicole, uh, Helen Sharman and uh, Rusty Schweikart from Apollo 9. Right. And the thing that struck me was that some of them go up to space and go, bloody hell, this is amazing. And some of them go, yeah, that's a thing that happened. You know, they don't seem to have got such a, you know, magical experience out of it, an epiphany. Oh, I think they all have. I think it. I think it depends. Some of the ones who it doesn't seem as, I mean, for Rusty, this was, you know, 1969 this was at the very early stages of you know th th this was uh, Apollo 9 was testing out the lunar module in space it was in the build-up to you know human beings standing on the moon um 
it was so soon after the Earthrise picture that Apollo 8 took, of course, because Apollo 8, you know, that image of Earthrise is one of those, you know, we should never feel that that is a mundane image. Mm. The, the, the idea that a, that a creature has, has, has left its own planet and been able to look back on it, I think, is remarkable. So I think that Rusty would definitely have had, and also Rusty prepared himself very much philosophically and in many other ways. I would say it's as true for Nicole, Helen and Chris, except... They went up where they spent a long period of time thinking about it. So it's not that it wasn't shocking or beautiful or remarkable. It's just that it was or had been assimilated to some extent. But they all come back. Everyone that I've spoken to has, you know, Helen has that beautiful thing that her huge change was that, you know, having been very much kind of part of the consumer dream of fast cars and motorbikes, she saw what it was like living in Russia and she saw the way people shared things and she saw all these people who had no cars but really cared about you. And that was a huge change for her. And she would go back into space, you know, as soon as she could. Um and Nicole, I think, again, she it has had a, a huge effect. But also the other thing is she doesn't want her life to be just going, oh, it's over now because you've been in space and you'll never go back again. So she's found lots of other ways of using it. But I think that's the big difference is for those very early astronauts, that each image was a, it's a it's a bit like the difference between you know a naturalist now going into the brazilian rainforest may still find incredible beauty but they won't have the same nature shock that charles darwin had because charles darwin hadn't seen any of these things there was no way of reporting these things effectively you know there wasn't television there wasn't uh, any kind of broadcast medium that meant you would be ready to see those orchids and those butterflies and all of those beautiful things mm. so i think that's one of the reasons that perhaps it might sometimes seem like there's a different level of that but they all spend their time you know there's always those stories of yeah i went up and i took the three books that i thought i really must read but of course every time that i had any free time i just looked out of the window and that's what helen you know helen's advice to any astronaut is always make sure you don't leave out just staring out the window for as long as you can mm. I think I noticed you talked about Neil Armstrong, uh, and I think he didn't want to really get mystical in his when he talked about um, his experience of going up into space. And also, by the way, we, William Shatner went up into space recently, and he did get quite mystical, I think there. And and obviously, there's the oddity of someone who played a space captain actually going into space, especially late in life. Could you say something about those different types of experience? Yeah, I mean, I think the Shatner experiences. I'm, 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 I'm very, yeah. You know, that, that, that's a kind of that's a novelty experience, you know, and and that it's all, all fun. So obviously, you know, to be an old man, to be that age, ninety years old or whatever he is, it, it is gonna. Uh, but I think with with Neil Armstrong, what's interesting is a lot of the people that I spoke to about Apollo astronauts said that because of the nature of it, could be quite a locker room kind of thing again in terms of the the, the front that you present is uh if you if you do start to get philosophical hey you know look at him he's getting all, all plato over there or whatever you know so you kind of but i but i also think you know neil armstrong was was very a, a, a brilliant technician as well and i th i think there was it's an interesting because it affected you know edgar mitchell who then became really fascinated in extrasensory perception charlie duke then became uh you know very much I, I don't know whether he'd call himself an evangelical i think he probably would call himself an evangelical christian there were huge philosophical changes but then that thing i mentioned in the book that great quote from you know where someone said that you know going to the moon didn't change the astronauts it allowed them to become who they really were hmm. and 
and I think that's an interesting point of, you know, and Alan Bean, of course, became this wonderful painter. Uh, Rusty has kept his uh, fascination with, you know, the, the, the ideas of, of, of asteroid strikes from the planet Earth and what we need to do about that. They're also, all of the astronauts are very forward-thinking people. Mm. So I think that some of them don't want to keep talking about that time they went into space. They want to know what's going to happen next and that's one of the parts of their kind of psychological makeup, which is why they were the human beings that they were, is they weren't they weren't the people who would dwell on kind of, you know, some sense of mysticism. Mm. But there are, as as uh, as Kevin Fong mentions, you know, that there's people like Rusty and, and and Jim Lovell from Apollo 8 and Apollo 13, they probably had the 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 really different makeup of saying this is not just some military mission or some national mission or whatever it might be or whatever you want to call it this is the start of our exploration and they are more philosophical and they do have that kind of sense of we need now to journey into space and go further Mm. Um, you've got a section called Whitey on the Moon in this chapter which is the Gil Scott Heron uh, sort of critical perspective on space exploration from I think from the 60s I guess was it yeah, no, it would have been just after Apollo Eleven. I mean, I would, I would have quoted uh, Gil Scott Heron's Whitey on the Moon, but I, the only reason I didn't was because then we found out how much it would cost, which is also why you find out that Prince isn't quoted. Uh, there's a little bit of a mention of Prince, but I didn't quote the lyrics because again, <laughs> the publisher went, "Anyway, this is how much it costs." No, thank you. No, we won't do that then. But what can you say something about the fact that we are sending? a lot of white people up into space and spending money on space exploration. Except that's not true anymore. You know, mm. that, 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 the diversity has changed a great deal. I mean, I do find it fascinating, of course, that, uh, I mean, that, that was very much his reaction to 1969. And I can, you know, this is one of the hard things, isn't it? The disparity that we see between the richest and the poorest in a lot of, you know, in, in our, in the culture in the UK and the culture in the US, there is a huge disparity between the richest and the poorest. And from pretty much all of the research that I've seen, this does not make for a happier nation not merely the poorest but the richest as well um uh, but what i also think is that we're looking in the wrong direction if we think that sending people to the moon for instance was spending money that was going to go into the projects that was going to go into places what we need is we need a kind of you know a, a damascene moment as a species or certainly you know in, in the in the countries that i've i've been in where you just go hang on a minute this just isn't right we can share this out much better and that's not about the money that goes into space that's about all of us mm. and i don't I, you know so I, I i don't feel that i mean i do think that what's interesting is it, it, that the the apollo years do seem very very traditional now you are beginning to get these you know the great f- f- film in a book like hidden figures as well that, that again shows the the other people, the diversity of some of the people who work in NASA and, and many of the forgotten figures, um, as we know, both from a kind of, you know, uh, ethnic background and also in terms of, of also in terms of, uh, of of sex, very often that means that some people's stories are not told as often mm. as the stories of the uh, the brave white colonial person. Mm. Um, but I, I, I think the... Uh, I, I personally, do, I, I do worry about the new space race, the new kind of, I, I sometimes look at Jeff Bezos and others and do slightly see this, is this boys with toys. And there's many other issues that we need to think about as well, like, for instance, the amount of space junk that we're leaving up there. There's lots of different issues. Um, and I worry sometimes about the fact that, you know, we might have this grand dream that we're all just going to move to Mars. But even if we terraform Mars, that won't be as good as a planet that's naturally terraformed. So we should never think that there's an escape possibility. So I, do, I, I think on that level, I sometimes do worry about that. Mm. And I worry, um, 
yeah, you know, I, I think especially if you're if you're running a company and you've made a fortune from that company and you're going into space, you should really be also thinking about the treatment of your workers and you know the values that the values that you are imagining are the values you would like to take into space should be the values that are also being played out on Earth as well. Talking of playing out the space values on Earth, you played the Voyager Golden Record to an audience. I love that. I just think the Voyager Golden Record, you know, I spoke to Andrean, who was creative director mm. of uh, of the Golden Record, and then uh, obviously worked a great deal with Carl Sagan and, and then married Carl Sagan as well. It's one of the great kind of love affairs of science. And um, I, I find that very beautiful. I find it beautiful, the go- sending the Golden Record in space. So that, that's that's on Voyager, and it's this, this compilation of all manner of different pieces of music from around the world, as well as spoken pieces and also photographs of, of, of different human experience. And what I love about that is it's really highly, 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 highly unlikely that that will ever be intercepted by anything but we've still sent it out there just in case and we've still sent out you know this you know a bit of bark and a bit of chuck berry and a bit of some of the traditional kind of music of of, of different wedding songs etc um you know what what will another species make of that will, will a species be able to experience music in the way that we you know in a way that, uh, that there was an article once called why dogs can't hear marla which uh, I, I love which is you know what's what's your dog hearing when you're listening to classical music and it might turn out that there's a very intelligent species who nevertheless is not able to the, the way it interprets music there's so many different layers there mm. of us trying to work out what is the right thing to send out as a sampler mm. of our planet. But I, yeah, I, I just find it a very, very beautiful endeavour. And then, of course, I love the fact that uh, I probably mentioned it in the book. I can't remember if I did or not. But the fact that it has a, a message from the Secretary General of the UN of the time, who was Kurt Voldheim, who unfortunately, once the record had gone into space, was found out to be quite an ardent Nazi. So looking back, we probably shouldn't have had an ardent Nazi uh, as the, uh, hey, come to Earth. That is probably not the right voice to, uh, but, you know. It, fortunately, the extraterrestrials that intercept it in uh, in in uh, thousands of years' time, they won't know the backstory, so it should be fine. Um, yeah, assuming there is anyone out there, you talk about the Drake equation, don't you? What what was that about, and what kind of person was Frank Drake? Well, I love the Drake equation because the, the the Drake equation, Frank Drake, uh, he basically came up with an equation of what we believe is necessary for there to be life on another planet, the various different factors. But the story that I loved, and I found it in a beautiful book by Diane Ackerman called uh, A Slender Thread, which is about working for phone helplines, the kind of American equivalent of the Samaritans. And the lovely story of Frank Drake was that Frank Drake would spend much of his professional career listening out for possible signals of extraterrestrial life. And then he volunteered at night, though, for this Samaritans-like helpline of listening out. So I think there's this beautiful thing, which is he was a listener. He was professionally and privately a listener. So he listened out for the potential life that was out there. But then he listened out also for the life that he knew existed, which was life that would sometimes be in despair and feeling hopeless and needing someone to listen to them. And and as Seth Shostak mentioned when I spoke to him, who's now the head of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, you know, Frank always had his door open. Mm. He was just always ready to listen to people. And I love that because I think that has an important lesson, which is that we can immerse ourselves in very grand ideas of possibility, Mm. but we should try and make sure that our hand is also reaching out for the things that we know exist, you Mm. know, for certain um 
and and I think that's you know and 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 again I mean that perhaps goes back to what we were talking about with you know Whitey on the moon and the uh you know the Apollo missions is you know that's what we need to do is we need to have both sides working we need to make sure we have our grand ambitions and we don't forget the planet that's behind us and we don't forget the people who are sometimes living in in squalor and the people who can be lifted out of that or indeed lift themselves out of that if we create a better society mm. I think that that's one of the high points in the book just that just knowing that really shone out the humanity of uh, of that scientist and many others you talk about Carl Sagan in there as well and many of the people you speak to they're, they're human you really draw out the humanity of them in, in a very engaging way in this book well that's what I really want you to say because I still think in popular culture there is the idea that there is the scientist Mm. And they're this very, almost a caricature human being. And they have a brain that is not your brain. It's so different from your brain. They were born with a science brain. There's this kind of, you know, that, mm. that, that sense. And I really wanted to get across, you know, whether it was, you know, obviously someone like like Jane Goodall or, 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 or Faye Dowker or Nicole Stott or any, any of those people is just show that these brains are, you know, their brains packed full of curiosity and mm. packed full of humanity. Mm. Jane Goodall took a social approach to studying chimpanzees. She, she approached it as a as its own society or as its own culture, and didn't mm. didn't treat them as a, a, things that are peripheral to humans, but really engaged with them. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, that's what I find. I mean, Jane Goodall is such a, uh, a fascinating human being, such an inspirational human being, and the fact that you know she went out to Gombe and she was she was not a scientist, but she was working on something that she'd wanted to work on for. Her whole life, rather rather beautifully, since she'd read the the book Doctor Doolittle about the doctor that can talk to the animals, she'd always from from childhood wanted to work out some kind of sense of of of, of communication and connection with with other species, and then because she didn't follow the rules, the rules were you kind of didn't give your chimpanzee subjects names, you didn't imbue them with personalities, uh, you only looked at one form of their behaviour, and she was like, well, this is ridiculous because they do have personalities the idea that we're the only species that has personality you watch a group of chimpanzees playing you can't just say that's 1a that's 2b that's 3c and also that the idea that you can entirely isolate one piece of behavior from everything else that goes on seems reasonably ridiculous as well so she you know she she i, I, I don't know if you want to say broke the rules she just did what she did um, you know, then when she went to Cambridge after having done this amazing research, you know, there was a lot of uh, of snottiness in the way that her work was looked at. But of course, as we know now, it is work that was was revolutionary that has changed our view of ourselves, that has changed our view of chimpanzees. And I love and I love the you know the, there's some things that she experiences that she says that she's had that I might be kind of like more like oh i don't really know but it doesn't matter it's you know again it's that thing where there's there's i, I mean I've, i find it beautiful that fe- she feels that maybe on two or three occasions only but she had some sense of a kind of mind to mind connection with chimpanzees mm. and when you see the beautiful footage of when she started to go and visit places where chimpanzees were being used in vivisection again which she was highly criticized for at the time but she thought i need to understand the people who are doing this and I need to understand who they are and communicate with them to be able to change this situation, which again is so much about that bit of not saying us and them. Mm. Of actually, and there's that that beautiful image, which anyone listening to this, you can you can find it, I think, on 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 YouTube, certainly on the internet somewhere, which is she she's looking at, at the chimpanzee in a cage and mm. just seeing this face of you know the faces that she studied for so long that I think she can get a sense of their emotional experience and what is going on. 
and she she starts crying and the and the chimpanzee just puts out a finger and just wipes the tear and there might be many different ways that people can say but actually but actually this but actually that but well as we know we don't understand human consciousness we don't understand chimpanzee consciousness we might be able to do that rorschach test and interpret it in any way you know that fits in with whatever way you want to believe about the world but the one thing there is most definitely there is that sense of connection that sense of there is that tear there is that finger there is that connection and that was one of the connections that meant that thanks thanks to her, her her campaigning it changed you know the the um many of the things about the nature of vivisection in the later chapters of the book you talk about the brain reality itself mortality imagination and knowledge and the end of the universe so uh i really bit off more than i could chew there didn't i eh that's just the last five chapters. You can see why the book was 250,000 yeah. words at one point. You said you're going to write another book about reality in the future, or you're currently writing it. Was that part of this chapter originally, the, the, the reality chapter? It literally was. I started yeah. writing the chapter, and, uh, I mean, as I said, literally every single one is uh, a, a subject that I could write. But, again, because of the higgledy-piggledy nature of my head, keeping the focus is sometimes hard but what i found is that definitely i mean there's there's enough good books out there that i don't need to bother writing them but you know writing about actual just death and 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 grief is something that i've always found is i i find very useful for myself apart from anything else but um but reality again it, it, i think it's driven by the same things and the things we've just been talking about which is to get rid of that sense of certainty to try and persuade more people to not be dogmatic to try and make people more people realize that sometimes you might be arguing with your partner about something that you've both seen and you're both utterly certain you're right and once you can start realizing you know what you're both right what you saw in your head is correct and what you saw in your head was correct. But the point is, what actually happened out there, neither of you possibly saw. Neither of you saw the objective truth. But both of you had an entire, you know, the, the, the subjective experience mm. you had is not null and void. But stop arguing. It doesn't mm. matter. Um, you talk about simulation theory. Some, some, of these, some of these ideas that you bracket off and say, I'm not going to deal with that. For example, in the, chap- in the chapter of the brain, you said, um, that that is, itself was a topic that you almost didn't write about, um, but in that in that chapter you also talk about the idea that we could be living in a simulation, um, and I think you said that you find that particularly disturbing. Uh, but I get the sense that you maybe can just put it to one side and not worry about it. Oh yeah, I, d- I, d- I don't care about it at all. It doesn't help and it doesn't explain anything. It, it's again, simulation theory is useful if you're writing science fiction, I think, uh, or making interesting films. Uh, I, I don't think, like free will, like the size of the universe, these are not the issues you, you need to get hung up on because mm. it's something, simulation theory, as far as I can see, there's nothing that we could ever do to make it provable. Mm. To, to make, uh, and so don't worry about it. Mm. You talk about the Boltzmann brain idea in there somewhere as well, I think. Yeah, I love Boltzmann brain, which which I think was originally brought up, I think much like Schrodinger's cat, it's one of those ideas that was used to actually underline a ridiculousness of a certain idea of probability, uh, but has now become actually this, oh no, do you know what's going to happen? It's more likely that you or I, or indeed anyone listening to this, that someone who's listening to this now, that actually you are a brain that has very briefly come to life in a sea of particles that is somewhere towards the end of the universe. Uh, it is more likely that that has happened from a probabilistic perspective and then you'll stop existing for a moment. You believed in all of the things that happened in the past and you imagined the future and you've just gone, 
thing consciousness exists thing consciousness shuts down and disappears again and then in another trillion years those things turn into a blue whale or a vase of flowers all of those things um and then and again i think Boltzmann just it's it's fun to play with it's it's uh you you have to work out you know how you're going to live your life to some limited perspective and i think if you get hung up with all of these possibilities then you end up just not being able to do anything whatsoever you talk about becoming a father changing your view of mortality you, you've mentioned that a little bit already what do you talk about in the chapter on mortality well that was it was partly down to I, the 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 poem that uh, I I mentioned early on about the last den, one night it got a very negative reaction from one member of the audience in this when I was touring with Brian, and it was someone who'd lost their child. And what they heard when they heard Brian talking about the laws that mandate there must be life in the universe must mandate there's going to be death, and when they heard the poem, they heard something that spoke directly to them and about their experience, and they were appalled. Um. And that was when I decided to do a chapter about death because I thought even though most of the chapters are about scientific ideas that we've discovered, size of the universe, evolution, whatever it might be, death is something that we've always known exists. But sometimes the further you go into science, the further away you get from any hope that there is some kind of afterlife for your consciousness, for you as you are. And so I wanted to just look at, you know, th this is something that can affect people severely, as, as it did this woman in the audience, that, you know, the, the, this idea that this is it is is a, a lot to deal with. So I wanted, you know, I, I spoke to someone that I know who lost their teenage son in a motorbike accident, and uh, he is an atheist. And uh, so his son, Jamie, he, he keeps the stories alive of Jamie, as do the whole family. So So they know Jamie is not there. But with Jamie's ashes, they every November the fifth they placed him into a rocket and stick you know some of his ashes up into the sky. Uh, they pour bottles of the soft drink J two O down the drain near where the accident happened because when he was a teenager, one night he drank loads of bottles of the non alcoholic J two O, believing it was actually booze, and then lurched around the house drunk, having just drunk a you know apple and mango drink. Um, and I and I was so I spoke to quite a few people who have had to deal with in particular what, what you might call untimely death mm -hmm. and find out different ways that they have found of key. And also I wanted to deal with the fact that sometimes when people believe things that look nonsensical, it doesn't really matter. So if you believe in angels, the conversation I had with a woman who believed in angels, really I don't think she did believe in angels. Mm -hmm. But it did mean that every time she saw a white feather, she was reminded of her brother and she would experience a story of her brother in her head. So I think I wanted to also deal with that fact that sometimes we do not need it. it like, I can't remember if I mentioned it in the book or not, but I, um, my mum believed in heaven. And I think my mum believed in heaven because her dad died when she was quite young. She would like to have spoken to him again. And she was also in uh, a car accident. And I think she would like to have imagined that she would have had a, uh, another life where she did not have to carry with her the, the wounds and the damage from that car accident. And I never felt the need to argue with her about the idea of there being no heaven. Because 
uh, it didn't make her into a bigger or someone unpleasant or anything nasty. There was nobody, it was just this hope that she had. And I remember when she was hallucinating once when she wasn't very well and she was like, she got very upset and she said, oh, and scientists have proved there's no heaven. I said, no, they haven't. I said, they don't deal with anything like that. Um, then a friend of mine who's an atheist said to me when I told uh, her that story, but that means you're not a good atheist then. And I was like, oh no, am I not? What's going to happen? How's not God going to punish me? And um, so I... Uh, so I wanted to deal with things like that as well, that sometimes there are mystical beliefs that we can have which are not damaging. I don't think anyway. I don't think are damaging. Uh, they are mystical beliefs that help us cope with something which is inevitable but is also very frequently can be catastrophic as well. Mm. So I wanted to try and put together, you know, like the uh, the the humanist celebrant Zena that I spoke to who told me about some lovely different kind of ways of doing funerals that again allow the stories to keep going because that's what we are aren't we we're a story creature and that and and we don't have to you know some people I think imagine partly because of the way they were taught science at secondary school that there are no stories in science that it's just numbers and symbols and that science somehow is saying and that's how you must live your life numbers and symbols always do the equation before you cross the road mm. and of course that's not how it is for you know certainly most scientists that I know or most human beings. Are you optimistic about education in the state system then in that, in that case or do you think that it's still repeating the same the same kind of patterns that have produced the two cultures in the first place? Well I think a lot of uh, science teachers that I speak to really want there to be more time to tell the stories to show the play that is required because that I think is what we people very often from I've now spoken to so many people now that I've done 69 gigs around this you know every night I talk to someone who says oh I th yeah I still don't really feel that I'm allowed into science or I just didn't get it when I was at school and the teachers that I know say yeah we want more stories that's what we want time for but we're being given a curriculum that says you must make sure the children have learnt these six equations by this particular date and you go but well, they've only learnt the equation they haven't learnt what the equation means they haven't learnt about how that particular scientist daydreamed their way to that equation or any of those things so i think you know we're always going to have a battle with that we have a battle with a very unimaginative government frequently very often unimaginative governments who presume that education is just basically giving people facts as opposed to you know what i think education should should be which is to inspire people to want to know more to inspire their curiosity mm. so it doesn't end when the bell rings at 3 30 afterwards you're so excited by a certain idea mm. or sometimes it might be after you've left school that idea is still stuck to you and you go now is the time i'm going to investigate it mm. okay great wow we've talked about so many things you've been very generous with your time which i think is probably typical for you isn't it robin i think this has been one of your typically generous uh interviews <laughs> it's Time's an illusion, it turns out. That's what the physicist told me, so it, it doesn't exist. Anyway, it's absolutely fine. <laughs> Thank you so much. So Robin's latest book, The Importance of Being Interested, out now and in a bookshop near you if you're in the UK. Where are you off to today, to Bristol? Uh, I'm off to uh, Bath Spa today, and uh, I have no idea tomorrow because I haven't <laughs> double-checked yet. Okay, thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank you very much.